The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. Lord, there was a day in heaven when all of your messengers gathered together and among them was Satan. Does Job fear you for nothing? He asked. He fears you only because all thing is okay in his life. You've put a hedge of protection around him. And in that book, as Job experienced suffering upon suffering, you displayed your sustaining worth. So that all of us here and so that the principalities and powers and evil forces of this present darkness might learn that we fear you because of who you are, not because of what you give. That we worship you because of who you are. That is what we have when arms don't heal and when we battle esophageal cancer, when grandchildren die, our rock has not shifted. And though our understanding is small, we can't get our hands around all that you are doing. We rest secure in our shepherd, our good shepherd, our chief shepherd who is over all things and has been doing all things well for all time. We rest in you today. We take comfort in you today. We take joy in the fact that you have triumphed over all principalities and powers. We follow you, our great victorious king. You are our life. You are the one who makes death gain. We rest in you today. Comfort broken hearts. Give a fire of perseverance that will not be quenched under the waters of affliction. We praise you that you are faithful to your word. Help us now to be faithful to the same. In Christ we pray. Amen. Welcome to Join Heirs. We are walking through Jesus' Bible, and we have covered five books, and we are moving into Joshua, and that's where I invite you to turn to the book of Joshua. I want to open today reading from the book of Hebrews. I'm in chapter 4, and you're all moving to Joshua, and that's where I want you to go. The book of Joshua, one second, he's got a photocopy, just trying to make sure we have enough here. If you don't have copies, we're going to have some more for you briefly. The book of Joshua is stationed on the brink of new beginnings. Israel was born through the waters of the Red Sea. 
God proved to them that he was for them and not against them. It was that transition that moved from them from slavery to freedom. The Red Sea. The waters parting, these waters of judgment, and falling down on the heads of Pharaoh and his armies. But as you know, Israel ends up back in slavery. It's a slavery of sin that didn't change. And for 40 years, they learned in the school of God to wait and to follow. And Joshua is going to open with a new definitive water-spreading experience. It's a new beginning for Israel. But instead of the Red Sea spreading, it's now the River Jordan. And the River Jordan is going to spread out and Israel is going to walk across on dry ground with God at their front. There's a big question that has left us at the end of the first five books. Will this new generation, God graciously preserving His people, remember the numbers census at the beginning of the book is almost identical in size to the numbers census at the end of the book? Even though God has taken sin seriously and brought serious judgment on His people due to their sin, He has also extended unbelievable mercy in raising up almost the exact number of Israelites. And it's that generation. The question is open. How will they do? Will they persevere where their parents didn't? Every new generation has that question because we don't make it into heaven holding our parents' hands. You have that question today. Israel is moving in to what is portrayed as rest. It's a picture of the Sabbath. Seven, six days God worked. On the seventh day, He rested. That is, He sat down on His sovereign throne And everything was at peace with God. People were at peace with God. God was at peace with man. There was no tension in His world. All was at rest. That Sabbath. Sovereign rest. And the fall didn't alter God's sovereignty. It just altered the state of rest. And all of redemptive history, from that point forward is about seeing rest on a global scale realized again. Do you need rest today? Do you feel the anxiety caused by the cares of this world and your longing for the rest that only God can bring? A rest that can be realized in the the context of chaos because we are confident that our God is on the throne. Here's how the writer of Hebrews read what was happening in Joshua. Today, if you hear his voice, the voice of God, do not harden your hearts. Because if Joshua had given the people rest, if it was the real rest, 
If it was the culmination of the offspring of the woman triumphing over the serpent, if the curse was really fully crushed, if rest was fully realized in Joshua, then why is it that when we get to Psalm 95, it says, don't harden your hearts as Israel had in the rebellion. Don't be like the first generation of Israelites who hardened their hearts and never made it to rest. Now that psalm was written ages after the original generation had already gone to the land. And yet, the writer of the psalm said, Today, don't be like Israel if you want to enter rest. So the writer of Hebrews picks up on that. He says, If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. For we as believers, as we read the book of Joshua, we are to be reading it through the lens that Joshua and the rest that he was giving is only a picture of the one who said, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and gentle of heart, and you shall find rest. What we're to read about today is supposed to awaken something in our soul. Awaken the reminder that we are not where we will ultimately be. Awaken a sense of longing for what Christ has fully accomplished and what for, for what we are ultimately waiting to see fully realized. Rest. But we're also going to see why it is that Israel Though they experienced a flavor of rest, it wasn't ultimate rest. There was a reason it didn't happen. And it wasn't because God was unfaithful to his word. It was because Israel was unfaithful to his word. This is a book that rests on two poles. It's going to go out of its way to exalt the faithfulness of God. A God who is faithful to His Word and it's going to go out of its way to call the reader, you and I, who are in the middle of a chaotic world longing for rest, it's going to call us to be as faithful to God's Word as He is. It's a book about God's Word. He's always faithful to it. We should be as well. Let's pray. Father, we long for rest. This is a weary, though brief, life. Sometimes trying to get our hands around it is like being a shepherd of wind. We can't manage it. We can't figure it out. It's frustratingly complicated. It's filled with brokenness. That's our world and we need to know that you are on the throne. We need to know that you're doing all things well. We need to know that you are a God who is faithful to every word that you speak. And we need to know that you are for us and not against us. Speak today. I only pray this through the name of the resurrected word. Jesus Christ, our advocate and mediator, the ultimate Savior.
This book has three big sections in it. And one of the questions that I want to seek to try to answer today is why the first section deals with so little and takes so long to get there. In eight chapters, the book only covers two battles, and it covers them in great detail. And then, in a matter of three chapters, chapters 9, 10, and 11, all the rest of the battles of the land are covered. And then you get this extended, very heartfelt, encouraging, devotionally edifying description of all of Israel's cities. One tribe at a time, I'm going to cover them all and give you their boundaries. And we leave that portion just highly enriched. And then we come to the final division, Israel's future in the land. And there's a big question mark that is waiting. And it's the question of, okay, Israel does okay during Joshua's time, but how will they do once he is dead? Deuteronomy ended with a baton passing. Moses passes the baton to Joshua. He is the leader of the people. But the end of Joshua has no baton passing. This is what we read at the end of Joshua. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders of Israel who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that Yahweh did for Israel. They served God during Joshua's day. That is, they were faithful to the word of God. And then we read, As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them in Shechem, in the piece of land that Jacob brought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. That's not just a passing reference of information. The final verses of Genesis said, the very final verses of this book where we started things last fall, a book that's just generated with mission, God's mission, to see the earth filled with His glory through a bunch of imagers of Him. Fill the earth, multiply and subdue it. A book that's dominated by a call to worship the living God. And a book that's dominated by Messiah. The hope of all the nations hinges on one offspring, a male offspring, one from the line of Judah, a royal offspring from the line of Judah, who will crush evil and establish God's sovereign rest on a universal scale. That's where Genesis is focused. And that book ends with the strange statement that Joseph told his brothers, don't bury my bones in Egypt. They're going to make a mummy out of me. And when the day comes that you go to the land that God has promised you, take my bones with you. So when I read the very last verses of Joshua, all the people served God in Joshua's day. That is, they were faithful to God's word. And they buried Joseph's bones in the land of promise. God was faithful to his word. And Eliezer, the son of Aaron, died, and they buried him in Gibeah, the town of Phinehas, his son, who had been given him, which had been given him in the hill country of Ephraim. 
Joshua's dead. The high priest is dead. No baton passing. Big question mark. Will the reader of this book heed its message or not? God has been faithful. Will you be? That's the book of Joshua. Let's unpack it. Two hinges in the book. We begin in Joshua chapter 1. Moses, the servant of the Lord, is dead. And Joshua is his successor. And the Lord calls to Joshua and gives him his marching orders. Verse 5, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, Joshua. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Only be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. These are to be a people of the book. The original prophet has spoken, and yet Moses said you're to expect another prophet, a prophet like me, And the very final words of Deuteronomy said, There is not arisen a prophet since Israel, since in Israel, like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. No prophet like Moses. A prophet who would be a mediator of the old covenant. They're expecting another one on the caliber of Moses. When Joshua starts his ministry, it's Moses' voice that's central. But one greater than Moses has come. The more ultimate prophet, on the same level and even higher than Moses, because he mediates not a covenant of condemnation, but a covenant of righteousness. As we read Joshua, we are not people, first and foremost, of the voice of Moses. We are people of the prophet greater than Moses, Christ himself. For the first generation, what they heard was, be strong and courageous and heed the voice of Moses. Don't turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success. This book of the instruction, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. And in saying that, he's holding up Deuteronomy. That's the name that Moses gave to Deuteronomy. And I called it the Constitution of the United Tribes of Israel. Joshua's holding it up and saying, Heed it! Follow the Word of God! For that is your life. For man doesn't live by bread alone. He lives by the very Word that comes forth from the mouth of the Lord. And it's come to us through Moses and now through one greater than Moses. So on the one hand, the hinge in this book is Heed the Word of God. People keep the book. And then the other hinge, very clear, is that God always keeps His word. Joshua 21. Thus Yahweh gave to Israel all the land that He swore to give to their fathers. Who did it? God did it. God gave Israel the land. God's the one who fought for them. They took possession of it and they settled there. And Yahweh gave them rest. 
but only a picture of the more ultimate rest. He gave rest on every side just as he had sworn to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, just as he had sworn to the Exodus generation. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for Yahweh had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that Yahweh had made to the house of Israel had failed. Every one came to pass. God has been faithful to His word. Will we be? So, three sections to this book. Let's just walk through them. And we're going to camp on the first one a little bit longer because it seems to me, in a book that's all about conquest and God establishing an earthly kingdom, we have to ask, why does he take eight chapters to give us two battles? And then all the rest is synthesized in three chapters. And that's where the book begins. So let's just walk through this. And I want to just let you know that this book covers a very difficult topic. A topic that's very hard for us to chew on. Most Sunday school lessons don't cover it. I'll touch on that shortly, but we're going to devote all of next week, or two weeks from now, all all of two weeks from now, to asking the question, what are we to do with these bloody battles in the Old Testament? Why is it okay? Here's the question we'll seek to answer two weeks from now. Why is it okay for God to call Israel to annihilate all of the Canaanites, and it's not okay for Hitler to do the same thing with the Jews? We have to ask that question and face it head on. That's two weeks from now. This week we just want to try to get our hands around this book of Joshua and the message that it's ringing. Here's the backdrop. Hard words. Israel, you're about to go into a land that is not yours In the cities of the people that Yahweh your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes. But rather you shall devote them to complete destruction. Hittites and Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, Bud Lights, Mosquito Bites, they're gone. As Yahweh your God has commanded, why? Because these evils are obstacles to your kind of living. And when you identify an obstacle to God-centered living, you do all that you can to do away with it. Because if you keep these peoples here, they may teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods. And the result will be that you will sin against the Lord. When Yahweh your God brings you into the land that you're entering to take possession of it and he clears away many nations from before you, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them. You shall show them no pity. You shall not intermarry with them. What's at stake here is interfaith marriage. Why must you not let them take your daughter for their son and take their son for your daughter? Because they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. And then something would happen. Israel, I don't want this to happen. I love you. And therefore I'm calling you, flee from sin. Flee from the obstacles to living for me alone. 
Because those who run from me get burned. My anger will be kindled against you and I will destroy you completely, quickly from the land. But this is what you should do to them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim and burn their carved images with fire. The carved images of their gods you shall burn with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them or take it for yourselves. This is backdrop to Joshua. Lest you become ensnared by it. Paul says, I call the rich, do not put your hope in riches, but put your hope in God and be rich in good deeds. Because wealth is a snare. You shall not bring an abominable thing into your house and become devoted to destruction like it. Think about what story we're about to go and read. You shall utterly detest and abhor it, for it is devoted to destruction. So I'm going to fly through the first few chapters. Just track with me. We're just going to look at the story. Perspectives on the fulfillment of the land. That's the first three chapters. They haven't moved in. They're just trying to get a broad picture. Everything starts with a grounding in the book. If you're going to have any success, you're going to be a follower and not a leader. Do you hear that, Israel? You will have a heart that is surrendered to me as a servant to a king rather than you being the king of your own life. It's the only context for success. It's the only context for blessing. Oh, the world might say you're in blessing when you're in the midst of sin, but believe me, in the end, you will know it is not blessing. The context is a word-based life. And then Israel, step two, So that's Yahweh's commissioning of Joshua. Joshua's call to readiness. He gears up the people. He establishes leadership. And then they send in their reconnaissance spies. Remember the two guys who show up in Jericho. They don't go through the front door because had they gone in the front door, they would have been, even as outsiders, recognized as those with whom Within the context of the ancient Near East, all the peoples of Jericho would have had to have fellowship with them. They would have broken bread. If they would have gone into the center of the city and say, we're looking for lodging, they would have been invited in. And they would have had to break bread. And when you break bread, a covenant is formed. I think that's why they show up at the prostitute's house rather than going to the center of the city. They come in the back door and they see for themselves, exhibit A, that the Canaanites are indeed as bad as God has said that they are. So they're at the prostitute house. What's her name? Rahab. And God chooses to intrude into this woman's life and make her a believer in an instant. That's the way God works, that he can rescue the dirty and the broken. A bruised reed, he will not break. A faintly burning wick, he will not blow out. That is the nature of our God's saving work. See, he takes a woman who's going to end up in the line of Christ. Go read Matthew chapter 1. There's only three girls that show up in the genealogy of Matthew. Rahab's one of them. 
Then we get Ruth, who's an outsider, not a born Israelite. Amazing work of God. And then number three, who's actually not named. She's simply called the wife of Uriah. Three women who are picked up, all of whom wouldn't have been the ideal Jewish mindset for who God would choose to put us in the line of Christ. But that's our God. He not only does strange things, he ransoms the broken. And this is a very significant part of the story because you have a Canaanite who's now believing in Israel's God and then the very next story, you've got an Israelite named Achan who looks more like a Canaanite. And there's supposed to be a contrast in the book as we see God carrying out his mission. You may be sitting here today feeling more like an outsider and God wants you to know I'm here to ransom you. And you may be one who's very at ease thinking all is well because you're a churchgoer and God's going to want you to recognize you're not on the inside, you're on the outside. So there's the reconnaissance of the enemy in Jericho and she helps these two spies and they say, leave a scarlet cord out your window and when judgment day comes on Jericho, notice I called it judgment, not random annihilation. When judgment day comes on Jericho, that red scarlet thread will be the signal for us that your home will be preserved. Because the future blood of Christ has ransomed that girl and the judgment of God does not intrude. Rahab said to the men, this sets the stage, Rahab said to these two spies, I know, I know that Yahweh has given you the land and that the fear of Yahweh has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. Why? Because we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea. That was 40 years ago, and the testimony is still out there. God said that it would be. Exodus chapter 9, Pharaoh, I could have wiped you out earlier, but I've kept you now to the 6th, 7th, 8th, ninth plague. I've done this so that my power might be magnified in you and so that all the nations of the earth might know that I am Yahweh. That's why God raised up Pharaoh. For this moment that a woman, broken and distant, might know God's love. That's why God did what he did. Oh yeah, the word went out what you did to Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites beyond the Jordan, Sihon Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. Because Yahweh, your God, He is God. I know it. What we're following is nothing. Yahweh alone is God. The Lord Our God, the Lord is one. She got it. She got it. Part two of the book. And here's where we're going to camp a little bit longer. Actually, not here. This is still under the first eight chapters. It's part two of the first eight chapters, and we're going to camp on the third section. So Yahweh's presence in the birth of new Israel. They've scoped out the land. We're supposed to go in. 
The troops move in. The waters part. And Yahweh is at the fore. Israel is singing His praises. The glory presence is there. They get to the other side of the Red Sea. They set up these stones, 12 stones, for the 12 tribes of Israel as a lasting memorial that God gave them the victory. Then they go to the north. North of Jericho, seven miles. The place has been called Gilgal. It's easier to translate, transliterate it than to just say it means foreskin. So they just tell us it's Gilgal. But if you read the story of how it got its name, it's because it appears that we have a generation that came out of Egypt that though they were circumcised, they were not circumcised in the way that God had called them to be. The Egyptians circumcised their males, but they didn't do it removing foreskin. Circumcision doesn't mean the removal of foreskin. It just means that you free the male reproductive glands. So all the peoples around Israel left that foreskin there, but not in Israel. They removed the foreskin. And so what we read in chapter 5 is that Israel, when they were all newly circumcised, having just gone through the waters of judgment for a second time and having experienced deliverance, They cast off the reproach of Egypt. They were a new people. This is a new Israel, not the generation that came out of the land, not the generation that fell due to sin. This is a new Israel. But there's still a question mark. How will they do? Will they persevere? Will they succeed where their parents didn't succeed? And now we come to this focus on holiness. My question is, why has it taken eight chapters? All of this has been ready to get us to Jericho, and all of it's taking eight chapters. That's a very long time, and then they're going to blow through all the rest of the battles. Let's dive into this a little deeper. Joshua chapter 5. Open up your Bibles there, please. Joshua chapter 5, verse 13. Breakfast was different this morning for Joshua. This morning, he had had a sweet tasting cinnamon barley roll. It had this white frosting on the top, It was warm, fresh out of the oven. For 40 years, nothing like it. But it was the barley season, and they were in the land. For 40 years, it had been frosted manna flakes in the morning and fried quail nuggets at night. Period. Everything, all the time, the same way. But not this morning. And Joshua finds himself right in the region of Jericho. Gilgal was seven miles north. But it says he was in the region of Jericho, and what we know is that all the people of Jericho were not going in and were not coming out. They're in the city because they're shaking in their boots. It's not quite, the biblical picture is not quite what we get on VeggieTales, where Joshua and his other vegetables go around and the French peas are throwing slurpees. Hey, you down there! What are you doing, dude? What do you think you're doing? Oh, they're so silly. 
It's not like that. They're, they're just caught up. And Joshua is standing there on the east side of the promised land. This picture of the Garden of Eden. This picture of where God's temple presence will reside in the midst of Israel. On the east side is the entrance. And this is what we read. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and he looked and behold, there was a man standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. Oh boy. And Joshua went to him and said, I do have a real question. Are you for us or for them? The guy's got a drawn sword. Out of the blue, he shows up. No, but I am the commander of the army of Yahweh. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped. What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army did not say, get up off the ground, don't worship me. Didn't say that. He simply said, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. Where have we heard that before? Burning bush. Same God, same holiness that must be taken seriously. The same glory presence that made itself known in the bush that led Israel through the wilderness, that allowed that presence to come down on the tabernacle. That same God is in this place. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I don't know how this armed warrior relates to the cherubim who was placed at the east of Eden. I'm guessing he's just a picture to remind us of Genesis chapter 3. He's the commander of the Lord's army. And this one statement, the place where you were standing is holy, puts all of the judgment that's about to come, all of the battles, into a context of holiness. It's about a people who need to take God's holiness seriously and about a people who have not done so. What's about to happen to the Canaanites is a picture of what will happen at the end of the age to all who fail to account for the holiness of God. It's a picture of what takes place at the cross when God's holiness is poured out in fire upon His Son for you and for me if you will but surrender to the King of Kings. It's about holiness. Not because of your righteousness, Israel, or the uprightness of your heart, are you going in to possess their land? But you're going to possess their land because of the wickedness of these nations. That's why Yahweh your God is driving them out from before you. And also that He may confirm, that is, that He might establish, hear that word, He wants to establish promises that He made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What are those promises? We've been just relishing in them all year. Recall that when you read a little verse like that, giving clarity about why all this conquest is going to happen, it's so that God might be faithful to what He said back here, not just to give Israel a land. But the land is merely the context in which He will raise up the royal offspring of the woman and make all of our problems get fixed. That's why God's doing what He's doing. 
And our hearts should move to worship to see the greatness of this God who is acting in love on behalf of you and me before we were ever born. Your name is written in that verse. I'm going to be faithful. Faithful. I'm going to do the work that I promised to do to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. Yahweh's holiness and progress on Jericho. So what do we get? God gives the marketing instructions. Six days here to go. So they're seven miles north and they're to travel the seven miles south and go around the city one time. The city is not the size of Minneapolis. It's not even the size of Coon Rapids. In fact, it's only about the size of three football fields. So this isn't a big task. They do have a seven-mile walk. But they're going to go around the city one time each day for six days, never saying a word, in total silence. Look at 6.1. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out, none came in. These are not pious French peas. These are freaked out because they know this is the army of Yahweh. A God who is for us, even when it's awkward. So I've given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around it, all the men of war, going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. That's part one of our story. We move to part two. It begins in verse 15. On the seventh day, Israel rose, and at the dawn of the day, they marched around the city in the same manner, but not one time. Now they go two times, and three times, and four times, and five, and six, and seven. Only on that day did they march seven times. And when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said, Shout! For Yahweh has given us the city. And all the city that was, and all that was within it shall be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute shall be preserved. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing of destruction. Remember that verse we read from Deuteronomy? But all the silver and all the gold and every vessel of bronze are to be holy to the Lord. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. And as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, they shouted with a great shout and the wall fell flat. And Joshua walks into the city and the French peas get up off the ground. They dust themselves off and they run off the screen. And Bob says... And so it was that God gave Joshua and the people of Israel the land. And Larry says, wow, Bob, that was a great story. Yeah, it was a great story, wasn't it? That's where our children's Sunday school classes too often end. In fact, it's where our adult Sunday school classes too often end. And I say that because I was teaching this when I was pastoring down in Louisville and the adult Sunday school curriculum happened to be on Joshua and the big wall and they ended it there because they didn't know how to deal with verse 21. 
Then the people of Israel devoted all in the city to destruction, men and women, the young and the old, oxen and sheep and donkeys with the edge of the sword. Two weeks from now, we want to try to wrestle with that because that's big. Many have looked at that and said, there it is, there it is, that's proof. The God who commands such things is evil, twisted. A very different God than the gracious and compassionate one we see in the New Testament. Except for that verse in Matthew 11 that says, don't fear him who can kill the body, but rather fear him who can kill the body and the soul in hell. Or about that one that says, Hebrews chapter, 11, uh, Hebrews chapter 10, 25, if after hearing this word of hope, you do not relent from your sin, then there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but only eternal judgment. Or the one that says, if you do not forgive your brother his sin, your heavenly Father will not forgive you. Yeah, same God. The same God who spoke long ago through the prophets in many ways has spoke to us in these last days through the Son. The same God. We want to try to understand how all that fits together when little boys and girls are being killed with the edge of the sword in Jericho. So that's the first thing that's often missed in Sunday school lessons. What's often, the second thing that's often missed is that when we get to the end of chapter 6, so the Lord was with Joshua and his fame was in all the land, then we read in chapter 7, verse 1, but that's what's often missed. That the story didn't stop in chapter 6, but that it actually has a second part. That when we read about Yahweh's holiness, it's not simply in victory, it's also in defeat. And we stop the story with God gave victory to Joshua, but the text doesn't want us to end the story there. Because the story's not over. The story's pushing us forward into a people, a person who did not take God's holiness seriously and the results were cataclysmic on a corporate scale. So what do we read? We read about this man named Achan, the son of Carmi, in the tribe of Judah, who took some of the devoted things and the anger of the Lord was burned against, not just against him, but against the people of Israel. And Israel comes up to Ai, the second city on their strategy. And it's a small city. No more than 3,000 people should be there. And so they, they sent a small army up. And Israel gets routed. And not only do they get routed, 36 of their kin get killed. But God was supposed to be fighting for Israel. I remember in 1992-ish when the United States went into war for the first time in the Persian Gulf. And George W. Bush stood up and looked at the screen and he said, we will not fail. We will not falter. And then he said a third thing and I don't quite remember what it was. It was in the same line. But there was no thought in there was a it, right in that same address was the recognition many will die. 
many will die. Why is it then that when 36 people die, what we read is that Joshua tore his clothes, verse 6, and fell on the earth with his face to the ground before the ark. And he says, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we have been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. Why is he freaking out? It's battle, it's war, it's, it's troublesome. 36 people died. That's a small amount in the big scope of victory. I think it's because who was fighting for Israel? Who was the ultimate warrior? Yahweh. And when Yahweh shows up, there should be no deaths, no defeat, no sign of falter. And there was. And Joshua thinks God has messed up, God has faltered, and God says, What are you thinking? Get up. Verse 10, why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. Israel has sinned. And so they go through the list and they find out by God's direction that it was Achan. And Achan and his family were then killed. Because those who take that which is devoted to destruction themselves become devoted to destruction. When you disobey the rule of the commander, you become the enemy. And just, and, and it, had, it had big results. And we may consider two weeks from now a little bit how it is that this family, how does the family get judged for one man's sin? It's an echo, isn't it, of our being judged for Adam's? And our receiving unbelievable mercy, not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done. God makes everything right through the judgment. His wrath is appeased and now Israel gets the victory over I. Let me try to pull this together now in the last few minutes. Eight chapters to consider two battle scenes and then he's going to blow through the rest in three chapters. All the rest of the kingdom of Israel is established in the north and in the south In three chapters, eight chapters to get us through Jericho and I. And I think the reason that it's here is so that we can really feel the significance of the fact that God is faithful to his word and we need to be too. He unpacks a story of two battles and it gives us a lens for what Israel was to learn in all the rest of the battles. It penetrates into our soul a word that is living and active, piercing to the deepest regions of our heart. That's the verse that comes right after Hebrews chapter 4. If God had said he, wanted, he, he had given them real rest, then why does it say there's more rest to come? The Word The Word is faithful. God's Word is faithful and we need to follow it as well. So let's look at this, the rest, just the big picture here, trying to get our hands around what's going on. 
eight chapters of God's strategy for taking the land, and then really quickly, he sums it up this way. There's covenant renewal that God makes with Israel. And then, 9, 10, and 11, they make it into the land. The north is conquered, the south is conquered. And this is what we read at the end of chapter 11. Look there with me. This is the lens through which we're to read it. So Joshua, verse 21 of chapter 11, Joshua came at the end, at that time, and he cut off all the giants from the hill country. The same Anakim that had given the first generation trouble, no longer a problem. God is faithful to his word. All the giants are cut off from the land. Joshua devoted them to destruction. There was none of the Anakim left. So Joshua took the whole land and he did it according to all that Yahweh had spoken. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. Then we move into this extended section in the book. All the kings of the peoples are surrendered to Joshua. And then we read about the inheritance. Judah gets an inheritance. Ephraim and Manasseh get their inheritance. All the rest of the tribes get their inheritance all the way up to chapter 21. Turn there with me. This is how you can preach through all those tribal allotments. This is how you can read through them the way I think we're supposed to read through them. We've had all these chapters, now we come to verse 43 of chapter 21. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he had swore. This is a book that chapter after chapter, detail after detail is designed to magnify the greatness of God. He is faithful. He is faithful. He did everything that he promised. Everything to the last note. He did it. And then the ringing question is, will we be faithful too? Here's the last section. A need for unity, a need for loyalty, We could unpack those, but let me just read through these texts. Chapter 23, 14 through 16. As we read, I just want you to hear the synthesis. It's bringing the message together. And it's the message for us today. I'm about to go the way of all the earth, Joshua said. And you know in your hearts and in your soul, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God has promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. But just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he has destroyed you from all this good land that the Lord your God has given you. It will happen if you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go after and serve other gods and bow down to them then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and you shall surely perish quickly from the land that he has given you. So fear the Lord. Fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Whatever the obstacles are that are vying for your heart, put them away. 
Choose this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Far be it from us, the people said, that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us up and our fathers from the land of Egypt. We know God has been faithful. He's the one who did these great signs in our sight and preserved us in the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord is the one who drove up before us all the peoples. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for He is our God. The question mark that ends the book is picked up in the book of Judges. But for us today, the question mark still sits ringing. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Pray with me. Lord, I know that was a lot. I know too that we want to be a people who are faithful to your word. Help us to relish how faithful you are. And may it create both longing and necessary dread. Longing that you in Christ will supply all of our need according to your riches and glory. Longing for when the day when you take away all tears and make all things right. And a true dread that comes from recognizing your faithfulness, not simply to bless, but also to curse all who are not surrendered to King Jesus. May we heed and may we be able to say, For me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Through our triune God, I ask these things. Who was and is and is to come. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the Kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.